business is even more ingrained in people like me, um, you know, hundreds of years later. Um, we're so much further from this idea of slavery and kind of reminded, okay, um, slavery was so long ago and you shouldn't care about it. And also going from elementary up, reminded that, okay, July 4th and, you know, Veterans Day, these other holidays that white people find so much pride in, we're also supposed to have pride in that in addition to remembering that, you know, even 50 years ago, we weren't a part of that pride. We weren't a part of the normalcy of what it means to be an American. I echo a lot of what Morgan said with the idea of double consciousness. And um, not, to, not to just restate what she said, but everyone think about the most recent example of that that has received widespread coverage would probably be Colin Kaepernick and his uh, demonstrations in the NFL and a double consciousness of, I am an American, but I am also wanting to speak out for injustice, and how do I respect both of them? And, and what he thought was respectful, seeing what happened to his career and what still is developing. And that is something that definitely happens when you want to keep in mind of who you are and your identity, but also what's going on in America. And oftentimes that, for especially Black people, that comes into conflict. Yeah, um, are, are, is everyone good? I'm not cutting anybody off right now. You're good. Okay, I, I'm sorry, I'm like doing this on my phone, so it's difficult for me. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I uh, appreciate a lot what, um, what both of you just said about double consciousness, and I, um, I guess I wanna kind of think also about what Baldwin said, you know, that he said the story of the Negro in America is the story of America. And, and so, you know, what he was really doing was claiming the centrality of, of, of black people's experiences as the American experience. And, you know, there's an idea out there that, um, that white people don't experience racism, but we do. We just experience it from the point of view of a person who benefits from it. And, so, you know, something that I know that Farmoy wants to talk about at some point is the idea of kind of decentering for allies, decentering their identity. Um, I think the 4th of July is a very powerful time to start doing that. What, you know, you could, you could actually kind of rethink what Douglas said and say, not only what to an enslaved person or their descendants is the 4th, but what is the 4th to the descendant of an enslaver? And to actually um, kind of capture white identity, not as a kind of a pseudo neutrality, but as a, as a position that's benefited from injustice and to actually actively ponder that um, as opposed to the, the kind of uh, default ignorance that we're kind of moving through our lives a lot of the time with unless we devote effort to, to dislodging ourselves. Yeah, I think that's, um, you know, it's interesting for me. I feel like, um, I feel like there's sort of, to kind of go back, to go off of Rob's point a little bit, it, it really, I think oftentimes for someone like me who grew up in the South as a white man in a family that was 
overtly racist, you know, it's, it's really, and overtly and very um, religious, very Christian. We were Protestant. We are Protestant. I am Protestant. My family was very um, religious. And, you know, the amount of effort, mental effort that it takes to sort of either gloss over, try to forget about, or somehow reconcile um, the three, four, five thousand different Americas that are out there as a white person, it's really exhausting. And I think, you know, that um, a lot of what I feel when I finally just admit that, you know, these things exist is sort of a, okay, I don't have to spend so much time trying to pretend like they don't, you know, it's, it's, it really kind of gives me a lot of relief to just say, okay, it's not, it's not everyone's experience. And that's, and, and that's part of my ancestors fault. It's part of my fault. And, you know, even if I don't necessarily feel like it, um, I am um, part of that system. And so it, it sort of just gives me a lot of relief um, sometimes because it, it frees up the mental space that I feel like we as white people use a lot of times to just try and make it not be as bad as it really is or was. Thank you guys for those words. Um, all very true. Uh, so before we get started on, you know, you guys, the audience, giving us your thoughts as well, I just want to establish um, rules for how we're going to go, go through with this. Um, I understand that we have emoticons, but those don't really give us a good order as far as like who did what first. But if you could just put in the chat that you would like to speak, um, and we will go from there as far as making sure everyone gets a chance to speak. So I'm opening up the chat now, and I see that, ooh, let me scroll down to the bottom. Brian Mott, does anyone want to speak? I think I might be a little behind on the chat. All right, I guess we all set it for him. So um, with all, all that being said, we can just go ahead and start with the PowerPoint, okay? Ooh. All right, so today we're talking about overcoming discomfort on the path to becoming a better ally. And I came up with this topic as to be our first topic after talking with a lot of the student leaders and the student body, um, because a lot of us were concerned that the message wasn't getting to the people that it really needed to get to. So this was my way to kind of try and foster a platform where everyone feels safe enough to speak um, uh, and we can learn together. So we're gonna learn together today and next week we're gonna be able to learn with the community that we serve. Alrighty, so it's been a while since I used this. We're gonna start with the roots of the tree. I wanted to kind of give homage to the themes I was trying to uh, really weave through these sessions, uh, growth. And you know, we have a tree and you can't really have a tree without the roots. Um, one of the first things you have to do as an um, ally is to acknowledge the, oops, do we have another visitor? Is to acknowledge the privilege that you carry, um, be it being white or being able-bodied, anything of the sort. And so uh, one thing I found while I was doing research on this topic is that there's a coin model for systems of inequality. If we take 
a coin and we look at it and we say this is a system of equality that is really set and rooted in American society, the top of the coin would be people who have the privilege to benefit from these things. The bottom of the coin are people who get disadvantages because of this system of inequality. So just opening up to the audience as well as panel members, do you have anything you'd like to say on privilege that you have really come to terms with over the past couple weeks? And if not, we can start with a few um, forms of privilege I found while I was doing research. So I'm gonna let y'all try and talk first and then we can go. Um, okay, Brian wants to say something. Okay. Uh, hi everyone, can, hopefully you can hear me and I just wanna thank you for putting this on today. Um, I've never uh, sort of thought about the system of inequality presented like this, um, but I like it because, so I'm, I'm from the North. Um, I've lived in the North pretty much my whole life until I moved here to Alabama. That's not to say that I haven't witnessed racism in the North, and, and certainly there are many members of my family that uh, express characteristics of racism. And, and what, a common thing that I hear people say is that, well, this is the land of opportunity, and, you know, you shouldn't complain if you didn't get anywhere because you have there's opportunity and all you have to do is pull yourself up by your bootstraps. But I think what that fails to recognize is that when when not everybody's playing from from the same field, from the same level to start with, it certainly is harder to to come from the bottom and work your way up than it is if you uh, you know from the bottom being on the bottom of the coin versus if you're working from the top of the coin and you have advantages uh, bestowed upon you. And so I just, I don't think that people really appreciate that aspect uh, enough. And, and certainly that's, I think, poignant for, for what we're discussing today. Um, yeah, I totally agree with Brian. And I think um, what I was going to say is more so of like what I've kind of recognized for myself, um, like you said, over the last couple of weeks, but also just, you know, past recognition. Um, like when I applied for medical school, I got called out on an interview for not marking the little box that says that you're disadvantaged applicant or something like that. And at the time, I thought, you know, I'm a woman, I might be a black woman, and yes, I've had disadvantages from that, but right now, applying to medical school, I had a good education, I have parents that are supportive, and, you know, it made me decide, okay, I don't need to check this box today. Now, I could understand why, you know, it would have been perfectly fine for me to check that box, but I think it's about recognizing what your personal situation is, uh, and, and, what that compares to other people um, and not being judgmental in when you get called out on those things. Um, and I was also gonna say just more recently that you know, in the ally versus activist uh, standpoint of everything, like I said, when I introduced myself, I 
consider myself right now a helper to be totally honest i'm not organized enough to add you know as much as some people have taken on <laughs> to my life but i'm very willing to be a helper and very willing to speak up and use whatever i can to spread information and to spread my own experiences and to listen to other people's experiences like Faramoy pointed out it's not just about black white hispanic and asian you know racism is just the kind of like the blanket on top of all of the other issues that separate people and put people down at the bottom in the oppressive part of this uh uh graphic you know um able-bodied language all of these things that separate people in this country and in the world okay and it's yeah. i'm sorry go ahead um, one thing I was going to say, and then Morgan made me think of something else that I was going to, I want to say, so sorry, uh, two things. We may never get off the first slide far, I'm always sorry. <laughs> um, but I think, um, you know, I, I really, I struggled a long time coming to terms with the word privilege um, because I really, it, it never felt to me like my life was privileged. Um, you know, my experience is coming from a very um, lower middle class um, background, and you know, struggling for money and things like that, and 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 only being able to go to college because of grants and scholarships and things like that. And so, um, I think it was it. My experience made it really difficult for me to to. It was a, it was a long process to come to the term that privilege doesn't necessarily you have privilege, I have privilege because I was born white in a society that values white people. <laughs> and that is why I have privilege. And it's not, and it's sort of like the, um, one of the illustrations that really helped me with this was the um, three kids standing to look over the ball fence and one of them, the boxes are higher for some of the kids than they are for others. And, you know, it was just, it just, a, I think it can be a struggle sometimes for people to accept that there is privilege, and it doesn't mean um, it doesn't mean that because I was born white that I'm necessarily bad. It just is what it is, you know. And that's how that's how it that's how it happened. Um, and so I just think I say that for if there's some people who are listening who might be struggling with that as I did for a long time, um, that it's just sort of recognizing that I'm part. Of, I was born into the same system. You know, it just, and a lot of it is out of my control too. It's just that I happen to be on the side that gets benefit from it. Um, and so I think that's something. And one thing I wanted to say that Morgan just really made me think about is one of the things I've been really concerned with over the past couple of weeks is um, feeling, hearing um, <clears throat> sort of a, kind of a almost like the helpers and the allies and the activists are kind of <clears throat> excuse me kind of turning on each other because it's sort of like if you aren't like all the way with the activist you have no place being an ally or a helper and you know this is such a profound moment you have to be all with us or you can't be any with us and i just want to say that i think that's just a false choice and i think that we need to acknowledge that there are a lot of ways to be involved and people are gonna be at different places on the spectrum. And we can't, I think, it's, I think it's very hurtful to what we're trying to accomplish if we turn on each other. Um, just because 
uh, people aren't at the same place as everybody else. And so it's almost like we're doing to each other the very thing that we're trying to um, fight in society. And so I just wanted to say that as we get going. Allie, you can go here. Hi, thanks for having me. Um, I just wanted to share that for me, I see my privilege as being an Asian American, um, but more so being a light-skinned Asian American. I think that's also a privilege being light-skinned because I am Cambodian and most people see me as being Chinese, um, but I identify very strongly with my Cambodian heritage and my culture. And when people dismiss that and say, oh, you're Chinese, you're not Cambodian, it's very hurtful. And um, we see that in all Asian cultures, to be light-skinned is to be beautiful. And that's something that they have in um, skincare markets, and that's what's advertised. And I think that's something that most people don't think about being a privilege, is just being light-skinned in general in whatever ethnicity that you are. Um, but just going off of Jason's point, I think that it's important. Um, we all are starting off in different places, but I think it's even more important that we all recognize that being in medical school, being in healthcare is privilege. Um, by being here, you have proximity of power and proximity of power is power. So the things that you do, the things that you say, they hold a very strong stance to the people who are around you and who are listening to you. So if you're not saying anything, they're like, okay, this physician or this medical student doesn't care. Um, so I shouldn't care either because like it's, they don't care about these health disparities and they're not talking about it, then why should I? Um, and this extends even to the coronavirus because as medical students, we're in the hospitals um, and when people are wanting to take time off, they're going to the bars and it's like, you have to really put things into perspective because by going to the bars and going out and having the position that you are, people are dismissing the pandemic and we're ultimately seeing health disparities within that. So I think it's important that we all hold ourselves to a higher standard and not make medicine a virtue signaling profession, that if you're in medicine, then that's enough, that you're helping enough patients when in reality you're not because your patient outcomes are looking very different than those of people of color or those who are aware of what's going on. Um, but for me, I think that was very important is recognizing my privilege in medicine. Um, and I think that's something that I've been frustrated with and something that Jason touched upon because I've spoken with him. I have lost um, my temper sometimes with talking to some people and I've learned that it's important for me to step back and understand where people are coming from. But more importantly, we've been in this for months now um, and I'm still hearing silence from a lot of people and really inconsiderate comments. Um, so for us, it's even more important to speak up and to defend the people and defend, defend our patients and our classmates. Um, yeah, I'd love to riff off of uh, both what um, what Ali described a really like a, a great example of kind of personal acknowledgments of privilege, and then talk a little bit about the way that like um, structural uh, structural racism can actually enhance our our ability to see. Um, one thing I've you know over the years in conversations with friends observed is um, and colleagues and, and workmates and things is you know, that they want to, to draw upon their personal experiences of, of um, pain or injustice um, to say that they're not privileged people. Um, I had a very close uh, colleague who was uh, robustly working class and therefore was someone who had suffered structural violence in, in the United States. Um, but he, that experience made it incapable for him to see that he carried white privilege. Um, and in a similar kind of vein, I. I guess, um, you know, I'll express like early in my life, I had a lot of um, kind of personal 
uh, grieving in a way that, you know, that impacted me profoundly, but, but personal pain doesn't negate privilege. And it's very important to distinguish between the tragic events that occur in people's lives or the unfairness that people experience periodically in a, in a random way with systematic structural forms of inequities that are perpetrated consistently against someone because of their race, right? That that's, that's not a, um, those are, those are fundamentally different things. One cannot negate the other. And then kind of um, riffing off of what uh, Jason was saying about the kind of difficulty and confusion about um, being able to even see privilege. I'd just like to point out that is a, an effect of the, persistent segregation among other things it is an effect of the persistent segregation in america which physically separates white people and black people and which is actually present in our medical school as well right that you know one in four people in alabama is black that is obviously not the composition of our medical school class we we move through segregated spaces and our educational system as well right that it is a a form of privilege to um in a, in a peculiar way um it is unusual for people to become aware of structural racism and privilege because we don't discuss those topics robustly in school. People get like a three bullet point version of, of the black experience in America. There was slavery, then Martin Luther King and um, uh, Malcolm X was kind of a bad guy. I don't really know why, but then everything was good after 1965. Um, and you know, that is, that is a, a ploy that has been perpetrated upon our society to prevent people from understanding that being born normal for gestational age, normal weight is a form of privilege. You know, like exposure to COVID is a form of privilege. Knowing someone who has died from COVID, there's a disparity. You know, one in three black adults know someone who has died from COVID. It's one in 10 for white adults. So privilege can mean many, many different things, but for both personal and structural reasons, particularly white people um, have been masked from having to acknowledge that. And so I think it's important to kind of view those different um, kind of vectors of, uh, of, of ignorance, if you will. Thank you guys for offering all of those wonderful comments, all true. Um, I did pull up this just to talk about it a little bit before we go on to our next point. Um, it mentions Peggy McIntosh, who, kind of, who, who was actually the person to coin the phrase white privilege back in the 80s. Um, and she actually did a little bit of unpacking of the invisible knapsack that white people carry around that carries all their privilege in it. <laughs> so they always have it on them. And so I found this to be very relevant, uh, especially being in a med school as this was written by a white medical student. Um, and so the, she was talking about a couple of the things that she noticed, the privileges that she has. Um, yes. So... I did want to call attention to a few of these just to form a contrast um, to see how different it really is, right? Uh, so here, when I applied to medical school, I could choose from any elite institutions, many of which practice medicine on urban and poor people of color. So this is very big as practicing on poor people and ur in urban communities is really big in the medical community for some reason. And uh, um, we remember the Tuskegee experiment you remember um, John Hopkins with, um, oh my gosh, her name is like blanking on me right now, Henrietta Lacks. <laughs> yes, so remember those stories. Thank you guys. Um, and what those mean. So imagine, you know, facing 
in your applica application cycle, these are the schools I want to go to, but what have they done to address these atrocities? What are they doing to um, uplift the people that have become victim to their system? Uh, so if we keep scrolling down, um, this one, because there is an actually a really popular story um, that came up, I think, a couple years ago. If I respond to a call for medical assistance on an airplane, people will assume that you're the physician. Now this, there was, the story that happened that I am personally remembering, there was a medical emergency, a black woman got up, she said, I'm a doctor, I can do this. Um, no one believed her, the staff didn't believe her, and they delayed care for the person that was actually having the medical emergency. So just a huge contrast. Things that you think that would not be that important are actually affecting people detrimentally. Um, and then this one I have personal experience with even now. Forgetting my ID badge. Um, I do forget it a lot because I'm, I'm pretty clumsy, to be completely honest. Um, and I know that I will not be afforded security, I mean, entrance into where I work if I don't have my ID badge. One, because multiple patients and staff have called me a nurse or, or um, thought I work for the janitorial department. Um, so they don't think that I belong there, obviously. Um, and those are just some of the ones I wanted to bring back. Um, I have this article linked to or cited at the end of this PowerPoint, and you guys will have access to this. So let's go back so we can go on to the next um, topic. Oh my gosh, no, I haven't used Prezi since 2016. So it's taken me a while. How do I exit? There we go. And I'm just gonna go from here. So the next route we have is to listen. And um, what I wanted to hammer this home with is the collective statement that I attached to the email when sending this out, because that is pretty much an embodiment of all the experiments, experiences that Black students have faced at UAB. Um, and it's important that y'all know what we're going through so that we can in continuing after this we know what to call out we know what to not tolerate going forward so i'm just going to open this up for discussion to panelists and the audience to share your thoughts on what you got from the collective statements what your thoughts were when you were reading in when you were reading it and if you're especially brave you know you can talk about what parts you believe you were complicit in and what you're doing to change that Don't be shy. Well, okay, I'm not shy. Um, <clears throat> I, uh, I, I think, you know, reading this, I think to the question about what are you complicit in, where do you find yourself? I mean, I think because this addresses the administration um, as well as the student body, I think I find myself complicit in a lot of this um, because I am part of the administration. And, um, you know, I, I think that, um, and, and I, I want to say, too, when I say that, it's not, it's, for a long time, I felt like I needed to beat myself up constantly. And, and now I feel like it's more of acknowledging that that is the truth and then saying, okay, now that I've acknowledged that, what can I do? You know, there's really not a lot of point in 
continually like wallowing in your guilt and your shame, you know, I mean, it's, it's not, I mean, it's, it's, I guess it, if it could be like a sick, whatever, but you know, it's just kind of, it doesn't really help anything, you know? And so um, just to say, I am complicit in that and whether overtly or just by being part of the administration, I am. And so let's, you know, move on. But I do think I was really sad, um, you know, sort of feeling like, um, you know, and maybe this is going to sound humorous to students who are black or students of color, but feeling like, um, you know, we have attempted to do things to engage students of color and still, and still realizing that students feel like there's two different medical schools and that they don't have a voice. And, um, you know, so I think feeling really sad about that. Um, and as I told a group that um, Farah Moy was part of, you know, the other night, we were talking about something else and, you know, also feeling like worrying, okay, what about our other students who are underrepresented or part of minority communities who, um, you know, don't have a collective statement, who haven't had a moment like that we've been in the last three weeks that has um, forced the school and the university to talk about these things? Like what about our LGBT plus students? What about our Latinx students? You know, and on and on, our students with disabilities that we can't see. You know, all of those things that um, those students are maybe also dealing with that we haven't, um, you know, had a conversation about in this way. And so for me, it, it sort of focused me in on students of color, particularly black students, but then also um, our other students who are in minority categories or underrepresented categories who are maybe don't have even this much of a platform right now. Anybody else, if, or is it okay if I hop in? Maybe it's ridiculous to ask for permission at this point. Um, I'll just read the chat. Yeah, I guess I had a couple of thoughts um, hearing that and then also just respond directly to the questions Faramoy posted. Um, I'll say up front, I've been engaged in the kind of um, anti-racist reading part of, uh, of becoming an ally for, um, I guess, about seven years now. Um, and in my first year of medical school, I did exactly one of the things that Faramoy listed on that collective statement or spoke out of that collective statement um, by medical students, which was that I called one black medical student by another black medical student's name. Um, and it was mortifying. <laughs> and um, I can uh, list all the reasons why I made that error, including um, internalized racism and, and a variety of other things. But, um, it's not as important, uh, actually, the underlying uh, reasons as the experience of that individual. Um, and being able to humble yourself and apologize and then process later um, why that, um, that happened is, uh, is good internal work to do. And I think that's kind of the part of this um, PowerPoint that, uh, or uh, that, uh, that's the point of this uh, session that we're having today. I did want to... Um, you know, kind of also just briefly respond to something Jason said about the idea of um, welcoming, you know, black students to the school and making making them feel at, at home there. It's kind of interesting, like the like next level of analysis is to ask, like, who does welcoming and why? Um, 
And are we implicitly acknowledging that the School of Medicine is a white space that Black people are welcomed into? And if that's still our internal framework, then where are we really? What are the things that would make UAB School of Medicine not a white space, right? That's the most powerful question we can ask because white people don't own healthcare and they don't own medicine and they don't own the state of Alabama. They don't own American history. They don't own the 4th of July. Black people are part of this country. Their, their story is our story. And so, I mean, I think that um, challenging ourselves to think a little more deeply about, about what we really mean when we see creating an inclusive campus, you know, um, can be part of that very form of progress we seek to, we seek to create. And, and I think it's important to define who we is there, right? Like, we can't be the entirely white administration of UAB, right? That's, that's not the form of progress that, that we're seeking. Alana um, had a, a great Instagram story the other day where she, um, it's not exactly uh, correct, but basically she was referencing um, the idea of bringing people to the table. No, we want a new table. Um, we want an entirely new table. This black people in this country deserve an entirely new table. We don't need to bring people to a table that already exists that we know is inequitable and unfair. That's, that has been a site of structural violence. So, um, I think I've engaged in enough, uh, enough rhetoric there. I'm going to mute myself. Oh, yeah, Alana, definitely put your Instagram in the chat. I want to check it out, uh, straight out those stories. But adding on what Rob said about how he felt complicit in, in what the collective statement was speaking on by misidentifying a Black student as another Black student, for me, um, that something happened. But not only that, that was my first experience in Volcker Hall, day one of orientation, um, walking in kind of that side door by children's uh, within 30 seconds of my first steps in vocal hall, uh, I had a student run up to me, oh my God, such and such, I haven't seen you in forever. And it wasn't my name. And that to a lot of people, that seems like something minor. But in the back of my mind, I'm just thinking, damn, excuse my choice of words. And that's something that I just thought about just as the day went on. I'm like, dang, is that what I'll be viewed as someone else? And I had never really been in a space like that where I was kind of the absolute minority. A little background on me, I'm from Birmingham, grew up in Birmingham City Schools, went to a really diverse high school, went to a UAB undergrad, which is really diverse. So I never felt like the black guy. And my first steps in Volcker Hall, that's what I'm greeted with. And kind of my experience at, in medical school, just being such a shift. And like what Rob said, being very mindful of those actions and how that can contribute to it. Colin Quinn, I think you were next. Yes. Um, so I think just something in response to kind of, you know, what Rob and Michael and we've all talked about and, and to your questions, Faramoy. After hearing a collective statement, I think something that I felt, you know, horrible about afterwards is um, specifically in regards to medical education, because I'm fortunate and, and very lucky enough to be able to serve on the medical education committee. And I think on that, I noticed that there were, you know, very racist things in our curriculum. And there's, um, I think one of the biggest things that has bothered me since day one is the fact that we don't have an official ODI faculty representative on the MEC. 
And, you know, those were always issues that I saw from the beginning, but I think because of, you know, having the privilege of being a white male and not realizing how, how big of an issue those were, I didn't necessarily bring them up early enough and on. And also the fear of, you know, what was the backlash from? And I think that was, you know, rooted in, in the privilege that I have and um, something that I felt horrible about. And I think that's something that it's not, not just within the medical education. I mean, I think it's on everyone that's a leader um, here at UAB. If you have the potential to address these issues, don't let your privilege get in the way of that. And I think reading that statement and hearing the comments that were said, that was something that just really stuck with me um, and, and something that I know I need to work better on. I think a lot of student leaders here at UAB in particular, we can all do a better job on. Um, but that's just, just some thoughts I had on that. Thank you guys. All right, so that was all really good. So we're gonna go to the next root of this problem that I think all allies should really have down before they even start on their journey. Um, outside of listening and outside of acknowledging, you have to be centering yourself because when you're faced with something that you were probably implicit in, um, your first reaction is gonna be to get defensive. Um, and you will want to make sure that other person knows, I'm not a racist. I was, had no part in this, but when in actuality you do, um, to say that is to diminish your part in the benefit you're getting from slavery, from uh, your family being probable slave owners, um, from the privilege you get just from your skin color, because a lot of this does come back down to race if we look at all the inequities we face. A lot of it does. So um, one of the biggest things I personally faced when trying to start these conversations with other people is more often than not, I'm gaslighted. And what does that mean? It's basically a form of manipulation. So you try to make a person feel doubtful in what they're coming after you for. Um, so does anyone want to kind of talk about that? If they have any experiences, I have my own, but I'll, I'll bring those up after everyone else speaks. Um, I think, uh, it can be combined with what, um, Colin was saying about fear of backlash. When people say things, specifically minority people say things, they've already thought through all of the possible reactions to it. And when your reaction is one that is negative and one that, uh, doubts the validity of what that person is saying, no matter what background, um they have to uphold their statement uh you know it is it, it literally is uh questioning their being um questioning all of their experiences and questioning their strength to step up and say that to you um to you it just seems like oh well i don't see it that way or you know maybe you're overreacting but to us it is you are not willing to hear me out. You're not willing to listen to my own experience and to recognize that it may be different from yours. Yeah, I mean, I think I'll say just really quickly that I think the name thing is a really good example of that because I think the first reaction that I tend to have on that is sort of, well, I mean, a lot of students get called the wrong names on courtships. A lot of students get called the wrong names on rotations, things like that, or, oh, I'm just bad with names. But I think 
it's a, it's realizing that for me, it's easy to say it can be a joke for me because I have never been in a position where I was just as interchangeable as the next, you know, person who had the same skin color as me, you know, and so I've never been made to feel like that. Like I was just interchangeable with another white person. And I think sometimes what I've heard from students is when you are a minority and you are one of very few in a situation, you know, you feel like, oh, well, I'm just a black person because they needed to have a black person. And it doesn't really matter if I'm Morgan or Faramoy to them. It's just I'm just another black person that they needed to have. And so I think it's that perspective that helps me not instantly go to, well, a lot of students get called the wrong names on clerkships because it's a difference in the way it's perceived. If you're part of the majority, it can just be a joke that you laugh about. But if you're one of an underrepresented group, it might feel like you, this is what I'm being told by other by students, is that it might feel like that people just see you as interchangeable. Um, I just also want to speak to that if I can. Um, I think that that in particular is a great example just because um, recently, I'm sure every uh, black person unfortunately have has experienced this, but recently I was called a different name, but the name happened to be another black female. So it's like, I can see more if it was a name that was maybe someone else who wasn't black or if it was just a different name but the fact that that person had the same um i guess was in the same demographic at, as me kind of speaks more to the fact that they recognize me more as a demographic than as an individual which makes me believe that well it makes me internalize the fact that i have to act as a demographic versus act as an individual. So um, that's kind of the self-reflection that I've thought of when I get called um, another person's name that uh, quote unquote looks like me. So um, I'm glad we just like naturally got to the point of names because this is actually something that's affecting me currently. Um, I actually have an attending that I was on family medicine with last week um, when I told her what my name was and I always pronounce, pronounce it all the way out every time I do it the first time because I know people have an issue with far or more. I guess it's too many syllables for them. So I told her and she said, oh, you're going to make me work hard for that name, aren't you? And I'm just like, yeah, yeah, I am because it's just a name. Like it's my name. It's my identity. My mom gave that to me when I was born. Like, it's a very big part of my identity. You should want to respect that. And so uh, actually in the chat, someone brought up a point about, you know, giving everyone composites. Attendings have those composites, right? You not even wanting to take the effort to like learn my name, you disregarded the composite. You're making an, a, a conscious effort to not even try. And uh, I thought it was a one and done thing. I talked to the attendings about it because like Michael said, you know, some microaggressions, we just let pass us by because we don't want to be seen as the angry black woman or the angry black man. But I think, you know, what everyone should start doing, because that's what I've started doing, is holding these people accountable, because if not, they're just going to keep doing it. So I talked to the attendings, 
Um, and even still, after talking to the attending, she that attending is still talking to other med students in my class about not knowing my name. So obviously there are people who are going to want to make the effort and then there are going to be people who don't want to make the effort. Um, and that's a big thing you're going to try to figure out when you're an ally. How much effort do you want to do? Do you want to make this? Are you willing to put your reputation on the line in defense of another person? So what I pulled up right here are just some um, reactions, honest reactions to being called out. Um, this is one white woman who wrote an article, um, which is basically titled, Holy Crap, Being an Ally Isn't About Me. And these are just some of the things that she said she faced when, you know, being called out. So getting defensive, because she was in the center of attention. People feel like they have to be the center of attention so they can prove to others that they're not racist or they're on their side. But, you know, virtue, virtue signaling is real. You're not doing it to help, you're doing it for yourself. Um, people worry about whether you're liked or accepted. Um, and then you refuse to listen when people are talking. You're not listening to understand, you're listening to apply. So that's one of the things people have to really think about when being an ally in these conversations because it can be really, really taxing to talk to somebody that just wants to argue instead of listening, right? Um, does anyone have uh, to say anything about what I have pulled up right here? Boy, I um, I just want to speak to the kind of perhaps the unique experience that medical that white medical students um, may have in this like in this specific context you brought up and in the general idea of kind of decentering our perspectives. In general, medical students are praised their you know entire for the entirety of their existence for being uniquely brilliant. Um, and I think that it's very hard to accept that uh, even highly educated people in America, medical students who are regarded societally as being, you know, some kind of superstars, are basically illiterate when it comes to matters of race and racism. And the kind of ego shock of realizing that you might have no idea what's going on at all um, and have no more understanding of racism, really, than a, a random person you pull off the street has with regard to the function of the spleen, right? Like these are, um, racism is, is complex. It's an interpersonal experience. It's a structural phenomenon. And so I think that there is an element, particularly for medical students that may be very hard to acknowledge white medical students, to acknowledge our own depths of profound ignorance and just to humble ourselves, be like, you know, the idea of like of humility and say, I actually don't know what's going on. I don't have expertise to draw on here. And then perhaps become curious about why on earth that is. How could you have made it through your life in America without really any expertise in racism other than the experience of passively or actively benefiting from it? So, you know, I'm not sharing a personal experience there, but just to say I'm sympathetic to the unique challenge for medical students, um, but dig a little bit deeper and just acknowledge the complexity of this topic and that you have no right, no one has any right without, without work to perceive themselves as being someone who understands it, who understands the experience of black people or the structures of racism in this country. Thank you, Rob. Um, so just in the sake of time, I'm just gonna keep going. 
because once we have the roots down, we can finally start growing. And part of that growing is to, you know, put uh, words, put actions behind your words. So now that you know better, you got to do better because advocacy is not something you get just in one day. Um, it, it takes daily work, right? Right. Okay. One of the things about being an ally is, because, um, is knowing that you're going to make mistakes because nobody's perfect. Um, and this is kind of what stops a lot of allies, like really early on. They think they get it wrong and, you know, they're, you know, led to give up. But you just got to keep going. Correct yourself. Apologize to who you need to apologize to and keep going because it's a lifetime commitment um, and it's a circle. You got to keep going. Circles are endless, right? Um, so just going forward with what we, well, what y'all can do with your privilege um, in helping the movement move forward, um, you can redirect the privilege, using it for people that do not have it. Um, and it's really important to have a really good understanding of what privilege is because misunderstanding it can lead to being misused. So one of the things by Ijoma Uluo that I really enjoyed when I was reading um, is that Privilege is like a gun, right? A loaded gun. Um, you have to use it properly or else it will just automatically aim at people of color and black people, right? So if you use it properly, it can do real damage because the only way to damage white supremacy is to use the privilege that is sprouted from it. So loaded gun, does anyone have any comments or thoughts on this perspective? Take your time. Hey, Moy, I just want to say that I'm I'm probably going to need a little bit of time to chew on this slide just a little bit. I feel like there's a lot that I'm not able to process just quickly. So sorry. No, <laughs> Silence doesn't mean I don't care. I just I'm gonna. This is the bane of being an internal processor. I need more time to think about it. No, this is a lot. It, it takes, you might have to reread it a couple times. Just take your time. We're like 10 or 12. <laughs> I'm a slow learner, sorry. Yeah, Michael just said in the chat, it can literally lead to a loaded gun, i.e. Amy Cooper. Um, and <laughs> um, yeah, I think it's, it speaks to that uh, usage of privilege to um, put yourself into a um, position of um, fear or um, harm that does not exist. And um, I think that the, the actual quote definitely speaks to being able to literally just use your voice. Like we've all recognized we have a voice as medical students, as people with social media and a following on that, no matter how small. If you simply use your voice, that's a starting point to start using that loaded gun um, to shoot at things that are 
negatively impacting others versus just letting it literally just go off in any which way direction. Um, not to start just completely um, repeating. It's just, I, I really like this, uh, this analogy. I think it's a, a really good way to recognize how complicity can end up being negative impact on others. I guess I'll try to jump in here. Um, and so just to build off of what Morgan was just saying, uh, which I agree with completely, and I, I think the last two um, sentences here uh, on this slide are really, I feel, directed definitely towards me. And yes, there, there's a lot of us here that are uh, MS4s, and so we're still med students, but before we know it, we're, we're going to be on the other side. And so as we all move forward, I feel a personal responsibility to help redirect the loaded gun um, because I'm going to have access and you know I'm a little bit older obviously and people already listen to me a little bit differently than I think some of my classmates and so I feel personal responsibility to help um, you know focus this change uh, moving forward. All right so just to bring the point home we're going back to the coin model I think they kind of reiterated, um, kind of uh, symbolized everything, brought it all together. Because yes, as I said before, it's not just about race. And if we can continue with the analogy that the top of the coin is where we have people that are benefiting and the bottom being the ones that are oppressed, you, all of them intersect, y'all. So we go from white being not right or racialized is what, you know, lets you um, we have disabled people, trans, uh, LGBTQ, lower class, um, not being male or female, English speaking, all kinds of um, privilege that you can redirect for the help of others. Does anyone have anything to say on this slide? Feel free if you notice something on Bingo that you can speak to. I think that I, I might be overstepping by saying this, but most of us have at least a couple of squares that we fit into here. And it's definitely important to recognize that some of these are literally, you will not think about them until you see someone else's experience. Until I went to a different city where it's more common to be an immigrant and a different school where, you know, there were other black people who looked just like me, but were from completely different countries and, you know, had different levels of support here. 
Um, I didn't recognize how big of a deal it can be to be an immigrant living in a country that you were not you know, comfortable in, that your parents may not have any family in. Um, you know, that's one square that I think I definitely have recognized within, you know, the last 10 years of my life um, versus ones that, you know, you might recognize from elementary school on, you know. Um, yeah. I think Maggie said, wanted, said she wanted to say something. Yeah. Um, something I was just thinking about, um, I had a conversation with Rob um, recently talking about um, using privilege that we have um, and how that's something that requires risk. And I think that's something that um, a lot of white medical students and certainly myself struggle with of thinking about what am I willing to risk? And when I'm on rounds and my attending says something that's racist, um, am I willing to speak up and say like, what do you mean by that? Um, knowing that they're going to fill out an evaluation of me at the end of the week. And they may say that I was, you know, not professional or that I, you know, need to learn to listen to my elders or something like that, that, that may be something that is that comes as a sacrifice to you as a white ally, but that's something that if you really believe in um, changing systems of, of privilege and oppression, that um, we have to be willing to uh, sacrifice something and, and make risks. And while I was doing the research um, into this coin model, um, I realized that a lot of people think the solution is moving everybody that's on the bottom of the coin the top of the coin when that's really not it we're trying to dismantle the coin right like that is the problem the problem is the system and those those systems have to be dismantled if anything's going to be getting better right um so as we finish up i'm going to move on to the next slide if i can so these are just some resources um for further readings and citations i put i want to talk a little bit about white fragility by robin d'angelo um, and how, while this book is helpful, it should not be your only, only um, book uh, for reference, especially when you're wanting to read. While it does offer um, a really good look into the reactions that a lot of white people uh, have when they're faced with this behavior, um, that's really it. <laughs> there's, no, there's no educational background to it. A lot of it is didn't really touch, well, they talked about racism a little bit, but not as much as I would like. What I'm trying to say is this book is not as educational as other books you can find. So if you're gonna read it, make sure it's not be, not gonna be the only one you read. And I've also attached the Hoy model uh, article in this, as well as the white privilege one that we saw earlier. Um, and that's, that's really the end. Um, thank you guys for joining me. Uh, it was really great. I'm going to link the survey one more time in the chat. Okay, Brian's good? Okay, good. Um, link the post session survey in the chat. You guys can take like five minutes to fill it out just so I know how this was received and how well we did, if we did well at all. Um, does anyone on the panel want to say something before we close out? I do. Um, as, as one of uh two white people on this panel one of them is no longer here um i just want to share i find um a a graphic by barner hesse who's a um, professor of black studies in in uh, the united kingdom 
Uh, it's called the eight white identities. You can find it by, um, by searching that exact phrase. I think it kind of helps us, uh, particularly white people, see um, that every white person has some position within the racist system. You can either be benefiting from it or antagonizing it. Um, and, and, you know, I try and actually think every day about how I'm moving further along that spectrum and which, which role I'll occupy that day. Um, it culminates in the, in the identity white abolitionist. And so, you know, you have to ask yourself if you, if you have what it takes to try to be an abolitionist that day. And kind of pulling together a couple of threads of this um, amazing session farm what put on, you know, one of the key things they talk about in one of the identities is naming having the courage to name correctly. That's something that we kind of return to a few different times, naming racism when we see it, naming black people correctly on an interpersonal level. Um, and so I think that that's kind of a lesson in, in the, the small power of an individual, right? Simply to, to use your voice to describe accurately what is happening around you. Um, that can be a tremendously powerful way to, um, to exercise privilege and to move yourself from one identity to another. So that's the eight white identities, Barner Hesse. Thank you, Rob. Um, just want to reiterate that these are weekly sessions. So it's going to be every Saturday at noon at this time, um, around an hour and a half. Um, and also in the survey, there is a chance for y'all to put in a topic that you'd like to see discussed. Um, so if there's something today that we didn't cover, you think we should have, please let me know in the survey below. All right. So, any questions? No? All right, thank you guys. <laughs> thank you so much. I'll see y'all next Wednesday, oh, not next Wednesday, next Saturday. <laughs>